In John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for another morning to worship you as a family, as a body, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ gathered in one gathering, one local center, called by your grace for your name's sake in this place. God, we know that uh, it is not always easy on our hearts, that there are distractions in this world that would pull us away from your goodness. We know, God, that there are uh, illnesses here and connected to people here that pull hearts away from worship. We pray that where it's needed, there would be healing, where perseverance is called for, there'd be perseverance. And we pray that despite these illnesses and sicknesses, that hearts would be tuned to the Savior. We pray, God, for those who are wrestling with job insecurity in our midst this morning. We pray, God, that you would give them peace. We pray that you would comfort them. We pray that they would trust holy in you, knowing that it is not by bread alone that we live, but by the very word of God. Father, we pray for downtown Cleveland. There's such a small gospel presence here. There are many churches that have abandoned the good news of Jesus Christ. And there are many hearts that are turned away from you. 15,000 people now in downtown Cleveland. And only a couple hundred of them love you and know you and are in churches this morning. May we be mindful of the harvest and we pray that you would send out laborers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We are in a short series on the, uh, the prologue to John's Gospel, which is the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. And this morning we're going to look at verse 18. So we've looked at the other 17 up until now. Um, Just to kind of give you a a preview of what's coming up. uh, One of our our lay elders, Brian, an elder's technical biblical term for a pastor. um, Brian is going to preach the next two Sundays. And then uh, we will launch into a, a series for the Reformation. For five Sundays. In case you were not aware, uh, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the dawning of the Reformation. What does that mean? What's the significance of that? 
Um, and, and is that biblical? And so we're going to look at that, starting with what's traditionally called Reformation Sunday, the Sunday uh, of, the, of the week on which the Reformation is marked to have fallen, which, by the way, is October 31st. Um, it's when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door in the church in Wittenberg, Germany. So that's what we'll do. We'll do five on that, and then we will do uh, an Advent Christmassy type series, because that's what we're supposed to do. Um, so we, we will do that, and, and then we'll be in the new year. So, uh, uh, but Brian's preaching the next two weeks, and I'm going to be working during that time on, on preparing uh, what we'll be preaching for the next, for the spring semester, for lack of a better term. Uh, but for now, we have one more in, in John. And we've been looking at this prologue of, of, of John, and <clears throat> we've seen that what John wants us what John wants is, is to present in this prologue a, a background on who this Jesus is and why we should pay attention to him. And, and unlike the other Gospels, uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke, which in all four of these Gospels, of course, are, are sort of biographies, uh, spiritual biographies of, of Jesus and what he, he came to do and why he came to do it. They point us to the good news about Jesus, that he died on a cross and rose again to new life, uh, that those who come to him by faith may receive forgiveness of sins. They point us to that. But John wants to, uh, to, to give us a big picture of Jesus, the introduction to his gospel. And he begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. And so he gives us this huge cosmic picture of Jesus before all things. And in verse 18, he's going he's to ramp this up, and he, he starts with this phrase, no one has ever seen God, which is... A crazy thought, because we want to see God, don't we? There, there, are, there are many people who would say, uh, I, I would believe, but I don't see. And so we, we say that seeing is believing, and we, we talked about that a bit last week. And yet there's a sense in which, unless we encounter something ourselves, we can't know it. But John starts off, no one has ever seen God. And it should go without saying, but it does need to be made clear that no one has seen God. And starting with that one basic idea, John wants to communicate to us this morning that, that Jesus is uniquely positioned. Though no one has seen God, Jesus is uniquely positioned to reveal God to us. And he gives us three reasons why that is true. But before we get into those three reasons, let's dwell on the fact that no one has ever seen God. Now this is a hallmark doctrine of our faith. Um, it's been handed down from the ancient Jews uh, for many centuries before the coming of Christ. And it has been held and cherished for Christians for many centuries after the coming of Christ. No one has seen God. When we looked at verses 14 through 17 last week, we noted that John, the author of this book, was alluding to the, the history of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. Remember, Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And, and actually, the episode that John sort of alludes to in verses 14 through 17 is the second time that Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Because he receives the Ten Commandments once, uh, he comes down the mountain, 
he sees the Israelites holding this orgasmic celebration to a false cow god. And absolutely irate, Moses smashes these tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. And those Ten Commandments represented sort of the framework of this covenant relationship that God was entering into with the Israelites. But what is a covenant relationship with an unfaithful spouse? Not not to be crass, but, but if you think about what the Israelites did, it was something like the bride on her wedding day getting frisky with the DJ about an hour before the ceremony was supposed to begin. And I think that most grooms, if they stumbled upon that kind of situation, would quickly call the wedding off in a furious rage. And there's no doubt that Yahweh, God, was was angry. But he didn't abandon the Israelites. And he didn't abandon Moses, who was called to lead those people on earth for a time. Moses was was dismayed by the people's actions and he was dismayed by the difficulty of the task of leading such a rebellious people. And and so he begs Yahweh to see his glory, to see God in all of his splendor, to see him in his true state. And and, and Moses figures by doing so, he will receive the, the confidence that he needs and the surety he needs for this momentous task. As we saw last week, God didn't go along with that plan exactly. But he did agree that Moses could see the trail end of his glory, the butt of his glory, uh, quite literally, so to speak. And and, uh, D.A. Carson suggests that it's something like God's afterglow. Whatever the cause or whatever the case is uh, that, that Moses is looking at, it was a taste of God's gloriousness. And it causes Moses' face to shine. But even Moses, the great prophet, could not see God as he is. The only other close example of anything like this is maybe the prophet Isaiah, who in a vision is is caught up sort of to the throne room of God. But even then, all he is able to describe is a throne and, and God's robe flowing to fill the temple. He doesn't see God as God. And even then, he says... Woe to me, for I am ruined. It's hard to even know what it would mean to see God, since Jesus himself tells us that God is spirit. And what we perceive with our eyes is typically not spirit, it's material, it's physical. But that hasn't stopped some religions, some cults, uh, from suggesting a person can see God. Mormons, for example, believe God is a glorified man who stands about six feet tall, resides on the planet Kolob. Uh, According to Mormons, God, whom they call Elohim, was seen by Joseph Smith, a 14-year-old boy from upstate New York. Not what Scripture teaches us, though. But there is more that John is conveying to us. To to, to even speak of of seeing God or not seeing God is to demand that we understand God as something beyond us. Uh, something outside of us that we might hope to behold. If God can even be talked about as being seen or not being seen, then, then God is wholly other than us too, right? He's, he's not 
uh, like the pantheists would say, like many Hindus or Buddhists would say, uh, uh, that God and the world are not one. And, and, the, and the world isn't part of, of God, like some modern philosophers and, and panentheists would say. Uh, those things are, are right out. We cannot see God by looking at the universe. The creation is separate from the creator. But on some level, though, all of that being true, you want to see God, don't you? There's a sense that seeing is knowing. Over the, the summer, I, I worked with some missions teams, and, and in the ramp up to that, I had some interactions with various members of the team, uh, phone calls, emails, and, and they were just, you know, disembodied voices or just an imaginary person on the other end of this text chain. And then when we got down to, to Bedford, because Bedford uh, High School was like the, was where everyone, all these missions teams came and they stayed in Bedford High School and then they, they scattered out across Northeast Ohio, the different places that they served. Um, and and I, I mean, before, as I talked to him, you know, I, I knew a lot about him. Uh, and I, I probably would say, oh, yes, I know him. I, I know her. But it didn't feel like I knew them. And then we, we gathered together at Bedford High School and I see him face to face, and then I start to put it together, and then I start to feel like, oh, okay, I know who this is. There, there's something about seeing a person, encountering a person, that makes them more real than just a, a voice on the phone or a, a few messages by email or text. Why the author of Hebrews almost sounds prophetic now, uh, right in the first century. Do not give up meeting together with one another as some are in the habit of doing. There's something that cannot be uh, replaced by our technology. We want to know God that intimately. We want to know God as intimately as the person sitting next to us in our, in our rows. But we can't. We need someone to reveal him. And John says that Jesus is uniquely qualified. Three reasons. Let's look at him. The first one is, John says in the second part of this verse, that he's only. Now that, that point probably isn't obvious. Um, but I'm going to hearken back to a point that I made earlier in this series, and then we're going to build on it a little bit. I see that Jesus, uh, it, it, when he says that he's only, what, what John is saying is that he's uniquely beloved. And you might ask, where do I get that from? And I'm going to tell you that it comes from this word only. Um, and, and that's a little bit fun because you don't usually get to make an entire sermon point out of one word. Uh, so I'm going, to, I'm going to enjoy that for a second. But, but maybe I should back up a minute. This, this verse is tricky to translate. We generally here at, at uh, Gateway Downtown, we use the English Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, if you're not familiar with Bible translations, don't. Don't be freaked out. Uh, the, the ESV, it's a fairly recent translation. But it's pretty well regarded for its accuracy. Um, yes, the Bible does come in multiple different translations because the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and we need to translate it into modern English. That happens. Uh, there's some people, though, so just when I, when I talk about translations, I don't want to freak you out because some people say, oh, the Bible's been translated so many times. I mean, how do you know what it means? Well, because we know what the original text is, 
And when I'm studying Scripture to prepare a sermon, I can actually look at the original text in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. It's not a translation of translations or translations of translations. It's translated directly from the original. We've got lots of translations. We can see, we can see and compare them, and we see that they're saying the same thing. They are reliable. But everyone's well, if you've ever worked between two languages, Spanish and English, or, or, or Chinese and English, or French and German, you know that some things don't translate as well as you'd like them to. Uh, or sometimes it's hard to capture the, the full sense. And verse 18, in many ways, a couple different ways, is one of those places where it's really hard to really just grasp the sense of what uh, is being said in Greek. We, it's not that we don't know what the sense is, it's just how do you convey that in English? And one of those is this word only. And if, so if you're looking at a different translation, if you look at a few different translations, you'll see it translated a different way. Uh, the King James says it's, uh, that Jesus is the only begotten Son. The NASB says he's the only begotten God. The New Living Translation says that he's the unique one. Um, the New English Translation says he's the only one. The New International Version says he's the one and only. There are a lot of variations here. What do we mean when we say Jesus is the only something? Is he the only? Is he the one and only? Is he the only begotten? Is he the unique one? The only one? And if he's begotten, is he the begotten of the Son? Or is he the begotten God? And what would that even mean if he's the begotten God? And is he the, in the, so we'll get to those things. All right? I don't usually like to dig this deeply into the weeds, but sometimes you kind of have to. To kind of draw out what, what's, what's going on here. Because I know that some of you are probably looking at different translations. I want you to follow what I'm saying. And the term only, uh, the, the Greek term behind this word only, is the term that we usually translate unique, one and only, only but begotten. It's a compound word, mono, genes. Mono, like single, alone, like uh, on your stereo system. If all the sound is, is pumped through one speaker, or if it's recorded so that the, the left and the right side are identical, we say it's in mono. Uh, so it's one. And then we have this word, uh, uh, genes, which uh, is, is where we derive like, the English term like a genus. Like, you know, from your, your freshman biology class, you know, you've got kingdom, family, order, something, something, genus, species. Uh, I used to know it. Um, but it's a kind, it's a type of thing, is, is why we call it a genus. It's a type of thing. So you kind of get the idea that the word means one of a type of thing, one of a kind. Um, and, and so that's where this, this, this term comes from. And we know with pretty great certainty that means one of a kind. And, and John uses that same word to describe Jesus in verse 14. And I mentioned at the time when we looked at that, that the word conveys a sense of specialness, of uniqueness. But there's a sense that whatever is one of a kind to something means it is particularly valuable to that something or that someone. And so the meaning of the term starts to creep into the realm of beloved. Because it's special, it's one of a kind, it's special to you, so it's beloved to you. Start, it starts to creep there. It might be too far to say that it, 
that that's the whole sense of it is, is love, but it starts to creep into this idea of, of, of um, something that's dear to us. And, and so Jesus' one-of-a-kindness needs to be put into a context. If I told you um, that, that something was one-of-a-kind, if I told you this painting is a one-of-a-kind, you, you would probably be saying, in what way? Or, or how so? Or, boy, that band is one of a kind. Oh, yeah? In what, in what way? How do, you, how do you mean that that band is one of a kind? And, and so we need to put that in a context. And John characterized Jesus as one of a kindness in verse 14 when he said Jesus was the one of a kind from the Father. Which is to say, at the very least, that his uniqueness comes from his relationship with the Father. Uh, yes, God loves many people in many ways, but there is a unique, special, one-of-a-kind relationship with Jesus. While all human beings are, are flesh, handcrafted by the Creator, Jesus was more than flesh. He became flesh because He existed in spirit with the Father before that. And there, with the Father, He was special in a way that we will never be. And so... Jesus' belovedness, his unique status, makes him uniquely suited to reveal God to us. He's special. But then John also says, secondly, that he's uniquely able to reveal God to us because of the second word, God. Now, the translation of the English Standard Version uh, runs together the words only and God. So it says, the only God. And that's a possible translation. Um, I don't think it's the, the best way to translate it. Again, sometimes it's hard to get from one language to another. Uh, but even if we accept the translation, it would need some clarification because it might sound like John is saying something pedantic, something a little bit boring. Uh, because if we take it at face value, we might think that John is saying something like, no one has ever seen God, but thankfully, God made himself known. Okay? And that's certainly true. But that's not what the English translators are trying to communicate, and I don't think it's what John was trying to communicate either. It's a true statement. It's just not what he was getting at. Instead, uh, the word God is probably a further clarification of the word only. It would be like if I said, if you seen my friend, comma, John. Friend isn't an adjective describing John, friend John. Instead, it's, it's a further clarification of who this friend is. So I could, I could say, have you seen my friend? And you would say, which friend? Oh, I'm talking about John. Have you seen John? But I might simplify that by simply saying, have you seen my friend? Namely, John. And what John is saying then is something like this. No one has ever seen God, the unique one, God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And, and there's no way to really write that that's not at least a little bit awkward in English. Uh, so you, you can have some grace with the translators. But the point is, is that John is in no uncertain 
terms claiming the full deity of Jesus Christ. Now, on one hand, that's just a recapitulation of the beginning of John's prologue. Remember, at the outset, John has begun by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that opening salvo finds a match at the end here. But it could be argued that John's language is even more poignant. For with a Jew like John, John was a Jewish man writing primarily to a Jewish audience, there was and could only be one God. And John, who first said that the Word was God in the beginning, now says that the unique one, Jesus, is God. And that's a pretty stark claim. And, and so let's clarify here. Let's be clear about a few things. Jesus, he's not, he's not saying that Jesus is merely godlike. He's not saying that. He calls him God. Everything in Scripture points to the fact that there is really nothing like God anyway. Outside of the fact that mankind is made to reflect Him in, in some way, but there, but there is no one like God. We sing that. So I don't even know what it would mean to say that Jesus is God-like. But John isn't saying that. There's no category in Judaism for a God-like figure. And, and it can't be said that John is saying that Jesus is a God, or, you know, God as an honorary title, like, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would assert. The Bible just simply never calls anyone a God that isn't legitimately a God. Certainly not as an honorary title. That would be to defame the one and only God. And so that will not do. And Jesus isn't a demigod either because the Jews had no place for such Greek superstition. And that's unbiblical. So in saying that Jesus was God, there's only one thing that John can be saying. And it's the same thing, by the way, that Jesus' religious opponents also said about him, that Jesus was claiming to be God. And for that, his religious opponents wanted to execute him as a blasphemer. Because the Jewish religious leaders understood the significance of this. Either Jesus was a blasphemer who deserved to die, or he was exactly right. He was God. There's no middle ground there. There's no in-between kind of God, God-like, demigod type thing for Jesus. He's either claiming to be God, in which case he needs to be killed because he's not God, and that's against the Jewish law, or he's claiming to be God, and he is. It's the only options he presents for us. You can accept Jesus as God, or you really don't accept Jesus at all. You can trust Him as God, or you really don't trust Him at all. That's sort of what happens when someone makes an extraordinary claim. If Bob the Rapper tells you that he's enlisting volunteers to you know, take a trip to see the southern ice wall because the earth is flat, 
you really don't have too many options. If you're, if you're not really sure Bob is right, that the earth is flat, you're not going to go. You can't kind of think the world might be flat. You either have to accept that claim or not go on the trip. There's not really any alternative. But this is what makes Jesus so exquisite to us. When John wrote that the Word became flesh, as he did a few verses earlier, there's no way to escape the fact that he is saying that God became flesh. No one has ever seen God, not at any time, but he makes himself known in the person of Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, for in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Which is to say that whatever God is, all of that is there and present in this man, Jesus Christ. And so, Charles Wesley, the great English hymn writer, took up verse and he could write, we'll sing it, I'm sure, at Christmas. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hailed incarnate deity. Good theology. So Jesus was uniquely poised to reveal to us God because he was, in fact, deity. He was God. Third, Jesus is near to the Father. And in some ways, this might seem like a, a step down in, in, in the uh, you know, profundity of things, but talk about another difficult passage to translate. By the end of verse 18, John says that Jesus is at the Father's side. So three things he said. He's the unique one. He's God. And he's the one at the Father's side. Literally, it says that he is in the bosom of the Father. But that's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in English. So most modern translations try to translate it in a way that makes some sense to us 21st centuryers. We don't use the term bosom very much. It generally means a person's chest, but in modern English it usually refers to a woman's chest, so it makes it an even more awkward expression. That wasn't always the case, though. Um, and the Greek word is similar. You know, it, it meant this region. But uh, it could also mean lamp. The, the idea is that it's sort of a, a sh there's a shallow cavity in the person in, in which someone could, can cuddle up and rest. There's, there's another uh, example of this term being used in John's Gospel uh, where the disciple John, he's not mentioned by name, we, we mentioned this earlier, John never refers to himself by name but there's 12 primary disciples and only one of them doesn't really get mentioned. And yet there's this unnamed, un unnamed anonymous, unknown disciple called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, tradition and process of elimination has always pointed us Christians to the fact that the disciple whom Jesus loved was John himself. That's the way John related to the story. This is as if John himself finds his identity precisely in the fact that he's loved by Jesus. 
which is a profound thought in and of itself. But what's interesting about this disciple is that at the Lord's Supper, that is Jesus' last meal before he goes to his crucifixion and death on a cross, he's, he's reclined at table with his disciples. Now, if you know something about the first century, uh, especially in Roman culture, people did not sit at a table like we sit at a table and eat. They reclined at table. They had specially made dining couches, and they, they laid down to eat. Uh, it was very relaxed and comfortable. Uh, your feet were pointed uh, away from the food in some way, and you just kind of lounged there and, and ate, which it looks awesome. Uh, there's a lot of different varieties and setups of how they did this, but the basic idea is that it was a very relaxed environment. Um, and, and so they're talking about the fact that they're all reclined at the table, and it says that the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that we, we believe is John, was in the bosom of Jesus. And, and the very next verse, it, it kind of a, a, elucidates that idea a little further. It says, uh, and the one who was leaning back on Jesus, or who was reclining. And so you get this picture that John was, you know, Jesus was reclined at table, and maybe he had finished eating, or mostly finished eating, or just taking a break because he was full and deciding whether to go back for seconds. And he, and he reclines back on Jesus. And he's just resting in Jesus. Now, that level of uh, intimacy among male friends is almost unthinkable in American culture. But you can imagine the, the sort of like trust and closeness that would be necessary for two people to assume that sort of posture in a non-sexual way, right? Uh, that would have to be someone you were absolutely... Uh, close to and had the highest levels of trust and closeness. And so when, when John says that Jesus is at the Father's side, when he says that Jesus is literally in the bosom of the Father, he's saying that metaphorically speaking, it's like the Son, Jesus, is... Is, is curled up in the lap or leaning back against the chest of the Father. It is a position of the most intimate trust and care and protection. And it tells us a couple things. That it says, first, that Jesus, who is God, is yet distinct from God the Father. Here... We already know the Father is God, and here John is saying that Jesus, who is God, is separate from the Father because he's reclining into the Father. Again, we have the, the building blocks of the doctrine that we call the Trinity. But secondly, as distinct from the Father, he's nonetheless deeply and intimately connected to the Father. And so John is telling us that this intimacy makes him uniquely fit to reveal to us the Father, to reveal to us God. And what is he saying? John finishes by saying, he has made him known. This is a great word. Uh, any Bible student should love this word. If you've done any sort of uh, uh, Bible study beyond bare bones, you've probably heard the term 
exegesis. If you haven't heard the term exegesis, either you had a really, really, really good teacher who taught you exegesis without using the word, or you haven't gotten deeper into your study of the Bible. And the reason I say that is because exegesis is just one of those words that there's just not a, there's not a good parallel for it. It's, what's a synonym for exegesis? Exegesis. I mean, it's just, one of, it's just, there's not a really good word for it, and so you either usually know it or you don't know it. Uh, and it's a word we use a lot, primarily, uh, sometimes in literature they'll use this term, but, but we use it probably more than anything else in our culture, particularly in the study of the Bible. And it, it means to draw out the, the meaning of a text, to lay it uh, bare, make it plain. When we study the Bible, we want to dig into the Scriptures and allow them to sing and allow the Scriptures to speak the truth. We, we believe that God's Word is truth and we don't want to inject our own ideas into the text. So good Bible study isn't looking for jumping off points or interesting tie-ins. Sometimes that's invaluable. But good Bible study is first and foremost looking to lay bare the meaning of the text the meaning of the Bible, because we believe that God's Word is powerful. And this term exegesis, it comes to us from Greek. And it's the, the, the word that it comes from is the word that John uses here. And normally I wouldn't say that well, if you... Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, hey, uh, this, the word in Hebrew is this, and that's where we get this term. And so they mean the same thing. No, I mean, words don't always work that way, like, like butterfly, right? You can, you can tell all day long where the word butterfly comes from. It's not going to tell you what a butterfly is. Think about it. But, um, <laughs> but this one's actually, actually pretty close. Um, Jesus, it says, has exegeted God. And it meant something very, very similar to, to fully explain, to present everything that there is to know, to lay it all out there. That's what the, the term meant in Greek. So very, very similar, very closely connected to the way we use it in English. In that vein, Jesus, the unique one who was himself God and who's intimately connected to the Father, is the one who lays bare everything we need to know about this unseen God. So, you want to know God? Do you want to know what he's like? then there is one who is uniquely positioned to lay bare everything that you need to know about God, everything you could possibly want to know about God without your head exploding, and that is Jesus Christ. Study Him. Look at Him. Dig into Him. Sink your teeth into Him, so to speak. Don't let this figure of, of, of history just pass you as a, a footnote in a historical text. He is the author and perfecter of faith. He is himself God. He is the, the word who existed before all creation. Come into flesh and dwell among us. He lived among us. This is God 
enduring the miseries and the joys of the human experience so that he can be like us. Why? So that he could take our sins upon himself at the cross. So that he could suffer and die and take the penalty that we rightly deserve. So that though we are separated from God, if we trust in him and his sacrifice, we can be restored into right relationship with God. That's a lot. That's, that's, that's a big idea. If you're not familiar with this, Jesus, you're probably, I don't even know what he's saying. But you want to know this Jesus. If you want to know God, then you need to look at Jesus. Study Jesus. You know, we have people here, if you don't know anything about Jesus, or you're saying, I don't, I don't know that I understand this Jesus. I don't know that I, I, I get who he's all about. I can tell you, I and, and other people in this church, I, I'm telling you, they will sit down with you and they will walk you through who this Jesus is and what he's like and why he came. You can, you can talk to just about anybody. You can put that on a connection card, whatever. We, we, will, we will make that happen. Because I'm telling you, if you want to know God, you want to look at Jesus. Because this Jesus, who is uniquely beloved, who is himself God and yet is in intimate relationship with God, has explained him, has made him known, has revealed him, has exegeted him, has laid bare everything we need to know about God. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. And if you don't know how to look at Jesus, if you're not sure where to start on how to study Jesus, well, let me give you two options. One, let us know. Because I can tell you, uh, I can probably come up with 10, 20 people off the top of my head who would love to walk through that with you. Even if you're kind of like, I think I get it, but I want to know more. You can do that too. Secondly, we've gone through the prologue of John's gospel. John ends here. Do you know why John ends here with uh, his, his beginning, his introduction to his gospel with Jesus has exegeted God, Jesus has made him known? Because in the next Beginning with the very next verse and through the end of the book, John is going to show us how Jesus revealed God. That's a great place to start. Just keep reading through John. You keep seeing how Jesus lays bare who God is. And if you are here and you're a Christian, you know who this Jesus is, you love, don't let it grow dull in your heart. That is amazing. These three words, only, unique one, God, the singular deity who rules the universe, in the bosom of the Father, yet mysteriously separate and yet in most intimate fellowship with the Father. That is a big Jesus. May our worship never grow dull. Let's pray. Father, our worship does grow dull. We let you, we let your Son, we let your Spirit become bywords in our hearts. Dulled to the mysteries of the faith. But may those mysteries well up in our hearts and, and, and grow up into cries of praise and adoration for your marvelousness.
And I pray for those who do not yet know you. For those who do not know you well. That they would be moved by your Spirit to look at Jesus. To investigate Jesus. To learn who he was. Who he is. What he did and what he does. May this community of faith be faithful to point them to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Stand as we continue to sing praise.